Hello and welcome to the Lively Faith Podcast. I am your host, the Reverend Nathan Stomberg, Rector of Holy Communion Anglican Church in East Greenwich, Rhode Island. And today I'm joined by my co-host, Reverend Mark Galloway. Before we get started, we've got a lot of interesting things to talk about in our next few episodes here. But please, if you've enjoyed the show, I encourage you to share it with a friend. And if it's really helps you in your faith journey, this has been the best way for us to share and grow the podcast is through your humble support and prayers. Uh, As of the time of this recording, our episodes continue to grow. We've had over 600 regular listeners to each episode, and they've been really well received on YouTube. So please subscribe if you haven't done so. Leave us a like. Every little bit helps us out there. So today, Mark, we're going to be talking about a really relevant topic to a lot of our listeners, especially those who are either part of or interested in the Catholic Church. When we're recording this episode, we are in the midst of the Roman Catholic Church's Synod on Synodality, and the headlines out of this synod, so-called, have been relentless, to say the least. And while we don't want to get too much just into pure reaction to headlines, but we do want to cover these topics which are of great interest to not only Roman Catholics, but Christians the world over. So we're going to revisit why that's important for Christians to understand, why it's important to pay attention to these things, and then the appropriate response to it. How should we deal with troubling headlines that come out of the church? So I want to start, I'm going to offer a definition, I my best explainer of the synod in simple terms, and then feel free to jump in, correct me where I'm wrong here. A synod, as as I understand it, is supposed to be a convocation of, of bishops in terms of um, understanding and discussing doctrine of the church. And where this one is so frustratingly deviating from that is that it's more of a general assembly. It includes both bishops, clergy, and laity, which is doesn't really make it a synod at all. And so if it sounds like I'm short for words and trying to explain what's going on here, that's pretty much everyone's problem, is no one really knows what this so-called synod is. Right. Synods go way back into the early church's history. The Council of Jerusalem would be Acts 15 is the first synod, right? The apostles gathering to discuss the issues of the inclusion of Gentiles into the church. Um, yeah, you, may, you need to make a distinction between a Catholic, Roman Catholic understanding of synod and, and Eastern Orthodox understanding of synod, which has always been a gathering of bishops. And the gathering of bishops in the Church of England used to be like this until it went to a, a synod a form of government in the early 70s, which was the beginning of, not the beginning, but certainly it accelerated its massive demise. Um, They were called convocations in in the Church of England, the convocation of bishops, and that's what governed the church. Um, Yeah, so, but a synod in a Protestant sense, for instance, a Lutheran synod includes uh, not just ministers, but laity and so forth. So, um, so, qualifying this in a historic Catholic understanding of what synod is, but specifically what synods have been since the Second Vatican Council. There's been many synods called by popes um, since the Second Vatican Council to deal with an array of issues and topics that the different pontiffs have uh, deemed appropriate. Uh, And a synod isn't like an ecumenical council called by, uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, where all the bishops of the world are called by the Bishop of Rome, Vatican II, 2,500 bishops called to Rome to discuss issues outlined. Synods are specific bishops picked from geographical regions of the world by the Pope to discuss whatever the issue he may feel is pressing on the universal church's life. As you said, this is not really a synod. It's something. Uh, I think, I I don't want to... say it's devious, but I think it is to some extent. It's certainly duplicitous to use the word synod in historical context because that's not what this is. 
And so it does, it's, it's caused huge confusion, especially considering the topics that they are discussing and the information that's either being overtly or less than overtly leaked out about what's going on. I, the word that came to mind when I was thinking about these issues, well, the phrase would be that it seems it's strategically ambiguous, which is, I think, much in the the perceived vein of many of Pope Francis's comments. But before we get any deeper, I think just to kind of reflect on our audience, reflect with our audience here, I think there's really two groups of people who we're speaking to who would be listening to this podcast. You've got one camp, which would be Catholic or otherwise, really doesn't pay all that much attention or any attention at all to matters of ecclesial polity or or religious politics, as it were, for lack of a better term, really doesn't know or really may not even care to know what's Correct. going on. And then on the other end of the spectrum, which I think also comprises a perhaps a more significant segment of our audience, would be the people who, the, the, the church nerds, the theology nerds, the people who care very deeply, Roman Catholic and otherwise, who are very much into the headlines paying attention to things that are coming out of Rome, and rightfully so, very troubled and, and perhaps even made very anxious and uh, wound up by the things that they're reading and hearing. And so I want us to be able to speak to and speak with both groups of people here and kind of come to a, a common understanding. That's very, very accurate of who our audience probably is, and I think it's overwhelmingly uh, the latter part of that, that is we have Roman Catholics that listen, and and conservative Protestants, Anglicans, and other traditions that are just uh, they've watched their own traditions collapse under these issues, and to some extent have looked for shelter mm -hmm. to the timelessness of the papacy, not deviating from moral truth. And all of a sudden, the same worms are coming out of the cans that were coming out of almost every single uh, Western Protestant tradition beginning 40 years ago, which has just left them empty shells. And uh, this is, this won't end pretty if this follows the same track. And the fact is, it's already, it, this isn't the beginning of these issues. They've already are happening. They're happening in Germany. They're happening in other places. So these, these worms have been out of the can, the toothpaste has been out of the tube for a few years. And uh, so that's what's adding to all this anxiety, yeah. which the media, both secular and religious media, just seems to be ignoring the fact that all of this is already happening. So I think there are devout Christians across the spectrum that uh, uh, whether you're Roman Catholic or not, if the authority of the papacy it becomes ineffective, collapses, is is almost apocalyptic, I think, for some people. Yeah, and we'll get to more of what that impact looks like later on. But I think for everyone listening and for us as we talk these things through, it's the same question that we asked in our last episode when we did the introduction to the Synod and we talked about GAFCON. It's, well, why should Christians care? And we agreed the old adage, when Rome sneezes, the world catches a cold, and this is going to be perhaps the ultimate example of that. Oh. We are, it's utterly uncharted water for that. There's never been ambiguous or even certainly um, left-leaning phrases coming from a, a pope that could ever question the immutable, unchangeable teaching of the church. And here we are all of a sudden, right? And every time such a statement comes out, especially the secular media, the established media jumps on it and runs with it, right? And it just keeps pulling that string deeper and longer and further. Right. And um, if that's not your strategy, then it's the dumbest thing you could possibly be doing for, for the wellness of the church. Yeah, and that gets into the whole conversation, the debate going on in Roman Catholic cir uh, circles about a set of vacantism or whether or not 
Pope Francis is the real Pope. I'm not getting into that here, but you can you can understand where people are coming from to think the moves that are being made, the things that are being said out of Rome are so so unimaginable that it almost seems more realistic that they would be devious or duplicitous versus simply flat out ignorant on their face. Exactly. You can't, right. Th those things are, are going to happen regardless of the outcome of this. Sentence. Right. And it's because of the ambiguity surrounding Absolutely. it. Absolutely. So one more note, I think, just to keep in mind is we're we're right now, as we're recording, reacting to and it, diving into some of these headlines as they happen in near real time. When this episode releases, surely there will be more news that has come out and we'll start to really see more of an experience, more of, of the fallout of this ambiguity. I want to just go through and touch upon three headlines that jumped out at me that seemed extra significant and Surely there are more which dovetail off of that. The first one, which was in response to, I think it was five dubia that were submitted, dubia being questions submitted by, were they all cardinals yeah, the submitted cardinals, to the Pope yes. uh, around the issues that we were just talking about? Right, which is normal canonical process in yes. the Catholic Church. Cardinals have the right to do so. Yeah, so well, well within their and rights. Pope have the moral responsibility to reply. Exactly. Which he didn't do the first time five years ago. Yes. Never, never replied at all to the first set of dubious, but replied to these almost instantly. Almost right away, which yeah. lends some observers to believe that he was yeah. expecting these questions to come. And the answer that really riled up the most people is that he signaled an openness to blessing same-sex unions within the church. Yeah, I, I even I, I try from every angle to say, okay, what was he thinking? What is he really saying? But I always come back to as a priest and a bishop myself is like, like why ever say that? Why ever say that? Right? Especially as the Pope, your job is to defend the teaching of the church. You don't have the right to change the teaching of the churches. Uh, I think most Protestants don't understand this about the papacy. We've talked about it before. Whenever the Pope speaks, everything he speaks is infallible. Like he says it's going to be sunny tomorrow, then it's going to be sunny even if it's raining, right? It's not true, right? No. But what a Pope can't do is change doctrine of the church, cannot change it. And obviously, you say you're going to bless something that both revealed word of God, natural law, and the teaching of the church says is disordered, what does that possibly mean? How can you say, we're going to bless this, and, but it's not marriage, but we're going to bless it. It's not like, it's not like uh, when you, know, you and I as priests or any other ordained clergyman, they're asked to go, you, know, you go bless the crowd at the blessing of the fleet, or you, you, know, you bless somebody's home or whatever. You know, what you're saying is you're giving permission, you're giving the right, you're granting grace yes. to a situation. So, you know, you blessed two people, two males or two females that are in a sexual relationship, you're giving the blessing of not just your personal blessing, but of the church. Constitutes an approval. Yes. Yes. So yeah. it, it's not possible. I've been through this for 30 years on the Anglican side of the river, right? It's not possible. People think it's possible if you get a majority of people to agree that such and such is true. Because that's, it's, it's just silly logic. That's not how God works, right? Otherwise, we could vote the Trinity out. Of, we could have voted the Trinity out of Protestantism many years ago, right? With just 51% of the vote. Yeah. So it's, it, I just, it's just become so, we were talking before we went on air, so much information. It's such a quagmire as, as, as a, theologian and somebody doing commentary right now, it, uh, sometimes I'm not sure how to shovel this stuff out of the hole. It's really, I, and I can see from Catholic commentators I watch who sincerely want to remain faithful and be charitable that it's, it really is a difficult act of contortion to try to hold those things in balance. But what you were speaking to, again, how the Pope does not have the right to change church teaching or doctrine 
again, gets to this whole what feels like a strategic ambiguity. And it's the same strategy that we've seen play itself out within the Anglican communion, especially where you say, oh, well, no, we're not changing the definition of marriage. Marriage is still the union, the covenant between one man and one woman Correct. open to procreation. We're not changing that. We're right. just, right. Uh, in the, for the sake of openness, for the sake of tolerance and understanding, right. blessing these other unions of an experience that has been marginalized and misunderstood, and we really want to show more grace to them. And that's where the whole argument comes from. It's not a new argument. I was on the floor of the General Convention of the Episcopal Church in 2000 and 2003, and they were just continuations of this conversation been going on for a few decades, and that's exactly, exactly the arguments of the progressive left that won, right? That we didn't, we haven't changed one word of the Book, Book of Common Prayer on the sacrament of holy matrimony. So how can we have changed the definition of marriage? That's how, like, childlike it's like it's like speaking with children it's like yeah but you're talking about blessing same-sex unions and and then having ceremonies where they exchange rings and they kiss each other and they live as spouses together how but we didn't change one word of the book of common prayer it's like talking to the wall because it's 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 not a logical conversation they're not interested in logic they are they know they've won and that's what's happening in Rome. This is what's happening yeah. at the grassroots of Catholicism across the world. Uh, because the ignorance, the carelessness, the just laissez-faire, non-commitment of the average person sitting in the pew, they're just the frog that's got solely boiled, and it's just how it is. And so the, the, the devout person doesn't... I think they, they, they've come to know now. They didn't realize how much of a minority they were five years ago. But they're learning it it's quick, very quick, difficult quickly now. Realization. Along those lines, Francis keeps the headlines coming. I think most recently, in the midst of this synod, he issued a, I'm probably going to mess this up, but I don't know if it was an encyclical per se, but he released what was essentially a climate change manifesto. Um, Laudate Deum, and yes. I don't recall all the details of what he wrote, but it was very—I mean, it was very similar and along the same lines of of pro climate, almost quasi climate panic, climate worship language that uh, he's issued in the past, which is really indistinguishable from, say, a UN statement yes. on climate change. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I've I've attempted to read the document. Um, again, it, it, to me, it, it's not, this, this is not where popes and bishops belong. We're about saving souls, right? And popes aren't scientists, right? And the inability, even in the document, to even admit that there's great discord within the scientific community about this issue. It's as if there's a unanimous consent about what's going on um, with the atmosphere and with the climate in this document. And uh, that's not even good research. It's, it's not even a good way to present information. And it, it, it takes half of devout and committed Christians and just splices them off from being um, faithful children of the church because they have a disagreement, which is primarily a political issue to to a massive extent in, mm -hmm. in world mm -hmm. politics, right? Um, but to put it in absolute terms with an encyclical is, uh, again, I, I don't get it. And part of, again, what fuels the consternation of so many is the dichotomy between here you have this very open revolt within the church against the biblical, the, the church's given definition, the God-revealed definition of gender and sexuality and marriage, not offering any clarity on those issues, yet at the same time coming out with absolutely clear, definitive statements on these tangential, un, really unimportant issues to the faith regarding things like, like climate change and economics that 
really provide no value or benefit to the faithful. That's absolutely right. You know, there's, there's been, there's no, been no discipline to German bishops defying the most basic Christian anthropology, right? No, nothing, 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 not at all, right? But, at, but like you said, applying uh, a writing on the environment in this absolutist terms Right, it's 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 just, it's amazing, and and you know to play the devil's advocate too, you could almost you could have an easier time defending some of the Pope's other pursuits if there was also the clarity on the sexuality issue, because then you could then you could treat those for what they are, and you can get into the conversation of saying, well, well, yes, environmental stewardship is important as stewards of God's creation. Let's have a conversation about that, or well, let's. Let's talk as amongst church leadership and, and discuss the principles of economics which are most conducive to human flourishing. And those are all good and important conversations to have, which are of value right. to the Christian There's faith. no rational Christian, no rational Christian that wouldn't say that we are stewards of the earth. It goes back to the yeah. first you know, chapters of Genesis, right? But at the same time, uh, as, as the New Testament clearly tells us, Right? This world's passing away. Our hope isn't in this world, right? It leads to this idea that the Earth's divine. It's something like Mother Earth worship. Like our only hope as human beings is in this world. Well, no, this world won't even exist in the culmination of time because we don't belong to this world, as Paul as Peter says, right? We're resident aliens as it is. We belong to the fatherland, which is to come, which is infinitely better than this existence, right? And so this this wrong preoccupation with That's exactly in, the word I was thinking in, was with environmentalism. Not that we ignore environmentalism, but environmentalism has become the religion yes. of the Western world. And what the Pope does and the whole slew of the Protestant world has just kissed themselves up to replacing re revelation in the role of the church and the gospel is to present people with the reality of who Jesus is, that he's the savior yes. of the world and he brings salvation to a fallen race. That's, that's our mission, that's our job. That's our, that should be our dearest concern about every human being. Not the fact that in the last hundred years, literally uh, the Atlantic Ocean has moved like three and a half centimeters. It's, it's, but meanwhile, people outside of knowledge of Christ, according to the New Testament, are outside of salvation, right? The, the concerns concern, are totally messed up. Of course, it's, it's, it's so juxtaposed in the wrong way um, that the church gets reduced to, to me, I, I don't know, you can answer your, what you think. The vast, vast, vast majority of people have reduced the church to a mouthpiece of sociopolitical issues, environmental issues, and social justice causes. Yeah, I was going to say it really gets reduced down to a social services organization when you think about it. I think about um, weddings that I've gone to in beautiful, old, historic uh, churches of the Anglican tradition, and they still they have wealthy endowments so they're still able to provide services to the community but they're really without the gospel at the heart of what they're doing they're nothing more than any other community action organization or nonprofit which is which, okay fine it's all well and good that you're helping people but if you're not saving their souls for eternity then what are you doing pretending to be a church right I, it's funny you say that I went to a funeral yesterday, a dear friend of mine, 82, and my family's, my parents particularly, one of the finest Christian men I ever met in my life, over 500 people came through um, to greet the family, and, and they had a service there following it, and uh, it was so refreshing, but it, man's name was Pete, actually his name was Paul, but we call him Pete, and uh, just person after person talking about his Christian witness, his life, uh, the things that were most important to him. And 
you've done a few now as a clergyman. I've done hundreds and hundreds. Most funerals are the most depressing things I've ever been to in my life. Yeah. Because the vast majority of people who go to them, they don't believe in a thing. They don't believe. It, it's just the cultural need to have a funeral. And so every, I, I, you've heard me teach on and preach sermons. Have you ever been to a funeral where the person who's dead hasn't gone to heaven? Exactly. Ever. No matter how, what, what, what kind of life they live, what they believed, how rotten they were or, or whatever, they're all in heaven driving the John Deere, doing whatever they want, and drinking beer. And um, those things just simply can't be true. If, if God is real and God is just, that and those things are impossible. Right? And so yesterday was such a, a gift to me to be able to go and just be surrounded by people who weren't mourning a person's death because they're afraid of mortality, but were rejoicing that this saint has been taken back mm. into heaven. Right? It's like, it's like weddings. Right? Your wedding was so wonderful. It's the last one I've been to. Your brother's was good. Um, but most weddings I go to, I want to just go hide behind a tree. Yeah. <laughs> because they have nothing to do with here. matrimony, the fact that God is bringing a male and a female together to be one flesh and to be the perfect union in his providence so that they can glorify God in their lives. Mm. It's about all of these other things about marriage, what, it's not even marriage, whatever you want to call it, uh, has become in our culture. But they, they still need to have the entrapments of the Christian tradition, right? Wearing the dress, ex sometimes exchanging mm -hmm. rings. Uh, there's uh, still a, an they, impulse. They, There's an they instinct there. They want the beautiful Catholic Anglican Church, the mahogany pews yeah. and all that stuff, but God's not invited. Very rarely no. is not invited to the thing. And really, just to close the loop on that, when you think about how marriage, secular marriage, is handled in Western culture, it's totally problematic when you start introducing the openness to blessing same-sex unions because even though you may say, oh, well, I'm not changing the definition of marriage, the secular culture, the people seeking same-sex union don't think that. They're seeking the blessing because they want to receive that same legitimacy as the, the storied Christian right. traditions surrounding there's uh, no delineation in the law anymore between the two. Right. Right. So it, it totally collapses in on itself. And then we get to the, the I think, also disappointing comments coming from Francis about the American bishops, who are all, I'd say all, are largely having the same conversations that we're having. And the U.S. College of Catholic Bishops being much more outspoken about the the errors and the statements that Francis is committing. And on more than one occasion now, he has chided them and chastised them for what he says is being backwards, backwardsness within Christianity and with the church and not being forward-looking and not being open to the evolution of, of doctrine and really it just those statements in particular for me were most jarring even as an Anglican observer because they were virtually indistinguishable from any sort of secular yes. leftist criticism of conservative movements of conservative Christianity as a whole. Right. There's a ton of sociology going on here, right? He's an Argentine, right? And a Jesuit. And a Jesuit who is steeped in um, liberation theology that's dominated South America for 50 years. I, I really don't believe that Francis doesn't understand America. He doesn't no. understand, and he resents America's role in the world. Um, and he doesn't understand that, he doesn't understand capitalism, which, is a, which can be very clunkety, right? It's not a perfect system. It's just better than any other economic system ever devised by humankind. Uh, to paraphrase and, Churchill, of course. Right. And, it, and it creates the most wealth, but ultimately, if it's left alone, it will, it will distribute wealth the best, too, if it's left alone. Yeah. But he, he has this dislike of America's military might, its role in the world, uh, as if America's military 
might and its role in the world hadn't been present for the last hundred years, there would even be a world. It saved the world. And it did it without being imperial. Yeah, in large part. Right. It didn't take over any land. It didn't take... We could have taken over the all of Europe after the Second World War. It's the it, it's just strange. The example he, that strikes me the most is World War II, how the United States rebuilt Japan, and less than half a century later, Japan was the most powerful economy in the world. Yeah, yeah. and the United States could have taken every opportunity to simply colonize Japan and and keep it right. under its boot, but not, it not didn't. Not solely, but overwhelmingly percentage-wise, as far as resources, a certain military presence, we would be all of Western Europe. Yeah. There wouldn't be a unified Germany if it wasn't for our presence in Western Germany, right? The fact that we basically are NATO, right, and defend NATO, it's our military might uh, uh, up on the Turkish border and on the Russian border that kept peace brought the wall down. So with all of that stuff, we could get in a big rabbit hole. Yeah. doesn't seem to get any credit. But the thing that, I'm going to go back to your uh, point about the American Conference of Catholic Bishops. This is not a conservative group of people. No. There are... There are, uh, there are pockets. Pockets. I would put in about 20% of bishops in the Catholic Conference would be men you and I would want to follow. Yeah. Particularly the cardinals he has appointed are complete leftists. They, they, and he's overstepped people far more deserving uh, that historically have always been made cardinals and didn't make them cardinals. Instead, he picked people who are pro-homosexual relationships and a whole bunch of other issues to put them in the College of Cardinals. And so uh, I can't personally, when I listen to Francis, I can't delineate between his merging of the episcopate, the Catholic episcopate, and American social politics. They, he kind of merges them into this single melu. Um, and again, it's, 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 there's no way a pope should be that ignorant about uh, the mightiest country in the history of the world. But I believe he is. And I, there's just this strong yeah. dislike of it. Um, excellent article and on the Catholic thing this past month, I don't know if you saw it, maybe you and I exchanged it, but it was a layperson saying, why does the Pope dislike me so much as a hmm. Catholic I don't lay, know that I read that one. As a Catholic layperson, why does the Pope dislike me? And he, and he pointed out, or I think it was a he, the article was written by, and he pointed out all of these hot spots around the world where there's just disarray in the Catholic Church and, and with governments doing, you know, obviously just far more horrific things than the country that supplies the most aid to anybody in the world, <laughs> right? It just doesn't make any sense. No, not at doesn't all. make any sense. So I wish I could give our audience some rationale that would at least be logical, but I can't. Yeah, I think it's, I think that's everybody's struggle right now in trying to understand and explain it. I think we've spent, we've spent, I think, an appropriate amount of time here summarizing some of the many concerns that we have and reacting to the headlines. But I want to bring it back again to that question, why should our listeners care? Why should Christians care? And as we've said before, when Rome sneezes, the world <laughs> catches a cold. And as you alluded to, I don't think that Excuse can me. be understated here. The weakening of Rome is going to have devastating consequences <laughs> for the whole of Western culture, because like it or not, the Roman Catholic Church was really, and even is now, a central pillar of Western culture and, and its existence. And, and especially during the Middle Ages, for example, was really the institution that kept and, and held society together and Promulgated not, it not forward. Not Protestants won't ever admit that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. From Gregory the Great on, um, Leo, Leo the Great is something. Gregory the Great, six, 604, the collapse of the West, of the Roman Empire in the West. It was the church that kept alive everything. Everything. And in fact, it was out of the papal granaries that they fed the poor and out of the, uh, the treasury and... Uh, it kept alive everything, law, to some extent law and order, learning, everything. 
Without the church, nothing would have survived in Western civilization. For the last, because of the collapse of Western Protestantism as being a moral impetus in any of their national origins, we'll, we'll use Anglicanism as an example. Now, there was a time where uh, uh, marriage, you know, divorce, there was no such thing as divorce in the Church of England until just a few decades ago. Mm. It was impossible to get divorced in the Church of England. We've gone from that to having transgendered priests to same-sex marriage to all of this stuff, all just like, like, like uh, the tsunami of stuff in the yeah. last 25 years, right? Um, so there was a time when the Archbishop of Canterbury's moral voice carried m more weight than any other Protestant voice in the world. That voice carries no weight whatsoever because it's not based on anything. It doesn't believe anything. It's, yeah. There's nothing. To, there's nothing to back it up. Um, there's, there's no gold and knocks to back up the, the moral voice. And so, really, since John Paul II, roughly, the, the papacy has been the last bastion of mm. a, the most ancient institution on earth that has moral clout in the world. And when it disappears, there's nothing to replace it. Use American microcosm. Use Billy Graham as an example, mm. right? Um, for de decade after decade, Billy Graham would be, if not the most admired American in a poll, would be right up there in the top two or three. Graham's been dead now seven or eight years or something like that. And since he's died, the denomination he belonged to is splitting right in half on the same-sex union mm -hmm. issue. Southern Baptist Convention, yep. right? And so uh, this is just a little, this is an example. Now, as inf influential as Graham was, as maybe the one of the greatest preachers of all time, certainly maybe the most listened to preacher of all time, his influence is minuscule compared to the papacy. Right. And the reality is for non-Catholics and non-Christians, most people around the world look to the papacy or to the Catholic Church as or their image of it as it, their understanding of what Christianity is writ large. And so when you see these mixed signals coming out, most people are just going to attribute that to say, okay, well, that must be what Christians believe about this issue. Right. And people, even with all the divisions in Christianity, the Catholic Church is by far the largest Christian organization. There's a billion, almost two billion, billion mm -hmm. and a half. Catholics. And the next largest group, if you lumped all of Eastern Orthodoxy together, you might get 250 million, somewhere mm. in that range. Um, so it's, and there, and not only it's, it's everywhere in the world. There's no way you can go in the world where there's not Roman Catholicism. That's not the case with Presbyterianism or Southern Baptists. In fact, the second most spread Christian faith around the world is Anglicanism, right? Because it went with the British Empire. In fact, Eastern Orthodoxy is primarily uh, limited to what is the remains of the old communist hmm. empire. So, um, yeah, you can't emphasize how enough that not only is with this sneeze is the world going to get a cold; it's going to get it's going to get a deadly virus. Right, and it's the same virus that we've seen already spreading through non-Catholic traditions and denominations as well. We've talked about the Episcopal Church and Anglican traditions. Certainly many of the the Protestant and Evangelical dominoes have fallen every a long time. Them, every one of them. I think the it. most recent example, I think many of our listeners would be aware of uh, Andy Stanley and his church from, I forget the name of his church, but uh, he's got that religious organization down in, in Atlanta, Georgia. North Point. North Point, yes, North Point Ministries. And recently he got into a little bit of a, a spat with Albert Moeller, and we can all <laughs> guess who won who won that uh, great battle. intellectual exchange. Yeah, <laughs> but his, I just wanted to bring it up because his comments at this conference were so eerily similar, I would say, to the same messaging that's coming out of the Synod and, and from Rome. And it's that, again, well, we don't want to redefine marriage, but we want to extend our circles of grace. And to paraphrase what he said, that, well, well Jesus drew circles and he drew 
he drew broad circles, and so we need to draw circles too. We can't limit ourselves to drawing lines, which right away we can think of any number of biblical exactly. facts to refute those statements. Exactly. But... The road is narrow that leads to heaven. We discussed earlier today, the woman caught up the well in adultery. Jesus didn't give her a whole bunch of options, right? Really, that story is not about Jesus condemning him, uh, her, reminding sinners we condemn ourselves, right? By denying the grace of God. This whole idea, well, we're drawing, we're, we're drawing circles of um, grace. First of all, that's not your job. It's not the church's job to draw circles of grace. And when has there ever been less grace available in the past than there is right now to everybody? Exact same grace is always available. Same, same ability to repent, same ability to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, that God is sovereign, his truth is immutable, his providence is perfect, he's perfectly just, he hasn't changed his mind, he's not changeable. Uh, so how is it that there's less grace available based on your sexuality? Exactly. It's, it's not theologically even possible to have a conversation on that. It's not philosophically sound. It's just part of the secular social soundbite system that it's how, it's just like the political system. You wear yourself down, right? You wear, yeah. you wear people down with this idea and therefore it becomes true. Um, but Stanley, as I said to you earlier in the week, who cares what that guy thinks? He's a pastor of a single church. Who cares what well, he yeah, thinks? Well, exactly. He represents nothing. He doesn't represent the great tradition. It speaks for itself. Which brings us back to why, especially in comparison to all these other issues, the turmoil that we see in the Roman Catholic Church, the effects of this really can't be understated. And as I was drawing up my notes for this episode, I was trying to think of a few different scenarios which could really play out because you know, we we don't claim to know the future or anything, but undoubtedly everyone who is observing is wondering at some point or another, well, what what is going to become of this? And I think the best case scenario, but all else being equal, is that you have an utter mess. You have a weakening of the Catholic Church as an institution, and people are going to be disaffected, if not fall away from the Christian faith. That's the best scenario. That's the best case scenario. I, I agree. And and then again, the pontificate continues. Maybe there's a corrective. I think a corrective is highly doubtful based on the the appointments that uh, Pope Francis has made yeah. to the college. So I, I don't see that as an option. But then from there, again, not to spiral into doom and gloom, but apart from that, you at least have ideological schism. And I can't remember if it was Catholic thing or it might have been first things discussing something to this point where you really don't, maybe you don't end up with a formal schism, but you're going to divide into camps, which we're already starting to see to a certain extent, where you'll have camps within the Catholic Church who are very faithful to biblical teaching and, and church tradition and they may pay lip service to the pontiff in order to remain under the Roman Catholic umbrella. And then you'll have other other um, camps within the Roman Catholic Church who, again, the institution itself will maintain this umbrella of membership, but you have these camps that are going to be deeply, deeply divided, which might as well be its own schism because you're going to have irreconcilable sounds like beliefs. Sounds like communion. Right, it not. sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Yes, Um Yes. The German church, would, no matter what comes out of this synod, which it's not, the German church, which has been down this synodical road for two or three years, is already doing the same-sex marriages. They're going to, they're pushing, they're going to, anybody who doesn't think the German church is going to ordain women is crazy. Mm. They're going to do it, right? And what's going to happen to them when they do it? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing, because nothing's happened to them for doing all the things they've already done. Right. So it's, it's, uh, it's this total intellectual dishonesty about what's going on, right? So it's 
Schism doesn't have to be like a formal declaration that was written out, right? There's right. no, it's not like the schism of 1054 between Constantinople and Rome where they excommunicated each other, right? Nobody's going to excommunicate the Pope. His, his authority is just going to continue to dissipate. Yeah. And it leaves Catholic theologians and the whole idea that what is the papacy? Can, the, can Catholic polity, polity, with its ageless understanding of the papacy, certainly since the fourth century, Leo the Great particularly, can it survive? And, and, and then can it psychologically survive without a truly functioning papacy? These are the real issues. That yeah. are, they're not, even friends of mine who are devout and, you know, they, when they speak about the indefeatability of the church, the whole, you know, that the, the gates of hell can't prevail against it. Uh, that's true, but it can, it, it can defeat an institution because the yep. church is something other. The church is the bride of Christ, right? And so uh, there's a lot of pain that it's going to totally oh, yeah. go way beyond my lifetime. You'll be an old man like me, and you'll and you'll be living uh, like the remains of destroyed Europe after the Second mm -hmm. World War. Uh, that's what's going to. That's where we're headed. That's what Ratzinger said was going to happen when when he was Father Ratzinger. It's mm -hmm. exactly what he predicted coming out of the Second Vatican Council that the Church was going to go this way. Uh, and and he would never talk about himself as a prophet. He he was just a very he was just observant that. Yeah. When you when you deviate from truth, it, the deviation only can go one way. Without an absolute corrective from the universal church, right? It's just going to continue to deviate. And once you deviate so far, a la Anglicanism, World Lutheranism, Methodism, Presbyterianism, Congregation, all of them, there's no corrective. It's impossible to correct them. Yeah, there's no so, recovery. Um, you, you can have, you know, um, groups like Pius the Tenth. Right, the uh, Society of Saint Pius X uh, just ignores. Oh us, yes, right, and that's what's going to happen, right? Yeah, um, we you'll, talked. You'll see breakoffs, or people will right. defect to other denominations or local, perhaps local churches. Yeah, I think it's like uh, it's really like your our existence right now as like orphaned Anglicans. <laughs> yeah, that's what it's going to be like. Um, unbeknownst to many, mm -hmm. how it's going to be for Catholics. Now, some countries will stay more intact, like Poland and Hungary will stay more intact for a while. Um, but Western countries, like you, you know, uh, the English English Catholicism, Ireland, forget it. Right? It's already gone. Right, it's gone. So, um, what does Ireland and Hungary have in common in the Catholic faith right now? Exactly. Virtually nothing, nothing right? They speak of. So, right. So um, it's all of this truth, the inability to speak the truth of what really is going on, of more like, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's yeah. like... Nothing uh, to see here. I, I, I've long ago been in these battles where if you're not willing to speak about the truth, then let's not even have the conversation because it's a waste of time. Yeah. So then the question remains, well, what are faithful Christians to do amidst all of this? What are faithful, faithful Catholics to do amidst all of this? And thinking about it, I was really reminded of the principle of subsidiarity, that yes. the things that you are doing first with your own personal spiritual life, right, repent and believe the gospel, and then within your own family, and then in the context of your local parish your or your local congregation in your local community that's where the greatest impact is going to be felt and quite honestly where you know for all of our our attention that we pay to what's going on in Rome really the majority of our concern should be within the difference that we're making with the lives in our immediate circles so i think that's really where we need to need to pray for what's going on in Rome Catholics and non-Catholics alike, but then we also need to pray for the Holy Spirit to help us remain focused on these things within subsidiarity that yes. should take the higher place in our lives. That's exactly right. And change, this, is, this won't set well with 
might well with our audience, but it wouldn't set well with a secular audience. Change has to come from fathers and husbands. Yep. Period. That's the first concentric circle where change will happen. And, and then it'll affect, and that's why it'll take generations, right? Uh, you have, and you're, you're sermonizing, I have for years, 12 men changed the world. 12 insignificant peasants from an ancient land changed the world. And that's what God can do. But you have to be willing to let God do what God is God's will. Right. Right. But if you if you're trying to thwart God's will, and, and and tell the world you're doing God's will, God's not fooled by men. Right. And he, he's um, that will that will not end pretty for you. No. Right. So doesn't have a good track record. Right. And God doesn't live in linear time. So. The church's future isn't dependent on a decade, a hundred years. It's uh, it's 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 in the hands of a perfect God who will never let his bride be destroyed. But that can mean centuries. It can mean centuries, right? Uh, Christians met in the catacombs for centuries. It took yeah. It took three hundred years till the Edict of Milan, right? So. The Edict of Milan came along 313 years, right, after the birth of Christ. America is not even 313 years old. Nope. Right? So Think it's an utter lack of perspective of contemporary Christians about any issue. And that the fight, goes, the fight isn't about today or tomorrow. It's for the rest of our life and beyond our lives. Uh, our contribution needs to be made to the generations that come after us so they continue the fight. Not, Absolutely. Not comforting to audiences you and I have been speaking to for the last 10 years. No, because then that implies there's personal responsibility involved. There's work to be done there. And sacrifice. And sacrifice. And, and ultimately the sacrifice. Uh, what, do you, what are you willing to give up for Christ? And there's only one answer. Everything. And until that's really the motivation between behind anybody complaining about a single issue... There really won't be change. It's pretty. It's sobering. It is sobering. Yeah. It's sobering. I read an analysis recently that I thought gave a really interesting perspective on the situation, similar to what you were describing, that I hadn't considered before. It was written by uh, Monsignor Nazar Ali, who I'll, I'm just going to quote him. Michael, yeah. Michael Ali. I'm an Anglican bishop of Rochester. Mm. And he joined the Catholic Church through the Anglican Ordinariate, correct? Yeah. And so he had this Two to say, ago, yeah. thinking through everything that we just talked about. He writes, Don't put all your faith in structures. The church is renewed by movements of faith and a deeper experience of God. By moving out to the desert, the monastic tradition renewed the whole church. In the Middle Ages, the parish clergy. The parish clergy. Right often could not preach. So when the Franciscans and Dominicans arrived, they were so popular because they preached outside when they could not preach in the churches. And in this way, the church was renewed. And when I was reading his thoughts, I saw similarities to the experience of faithful Christians throughout the world, but especially across now the post-Christian West, where we need to learn and need to be comfortable doing ministry now without the structures and the institutions that we have grown so accustomed to for a the season. The accoutrements of a, yeah. of a comfortable life. Right? And, and what do I mean that, by that? I mean without large denominational infrastructure, without church buildings, without large mega churches, though those will certainly persist. Professional clergy. Professional clergymen. Um, Indeed, even I think in many cases, uh, a turning to house churches and really, really local groups of, of families gathering together and observing the sacraments or gathering and, and forming smaller congregations that way. It's all coming. It's again, I, I, I'm just going to say it because I won't be alive long enough to prove it, but it's, it's all coming. And, um, 
any any person with insight of history and, and societal and sociological reality knows that that's what's coming um and, you know uh dr um Nazar Ali is one of, maybe the greatest mind in Anglicanism of his lifetime. Mm. And um, and Rome got a great gift, though. I, I think it's going to get squashed where he is in the, and, and he's, you know, he's in, the, he's in, he's near 80 years old now. But, you know, uh, his whole thing about the Dominicans, you know, brought, particularly brought great renewal. OPs, the Order of Preachers, the Dominicans, and I'm obviously, I'm, I'm Theologically trained by the Dominicans, and so, um, but John John Wesley did the same thing, mm. right? Wesley's Wesley brought this great re revival evangelical zeal, and Wesley was a high churchman. He wasn't a, he wasn't a low churchman. He was a, he's an Arminian. He was not a Calvinist. Uh, was not a double predestinarian. Uh, he believed in the efficacy of the sacraments and the often receiving thereof. Had a high view of ministry. But it was his preachers that brought the gospel mainly to North America, brought, him, brought the gospel across the Appalachian Mountains and changed mm. the whole context in the course of history in America were primarily Methodist lay preachers, mm. not the established Presbyterian church. The Episcopalians didn't even get across that old Pullman car, got them across there by 1890 yeah. or something like that, right? Um, so there's great parallels between what the Dominicans did in the middle and ages the medieval period and wesley's preachers did that's what needs and will happen in the future where where they come from and what their titles are and all that is to be determined i have a i have a strong sense it's going to be in a great amalgamation of things that's going to bring people across lines and bring them to a much more unified understanding of the gospel mm. um I think you'll see it in your lifetime, the the beginnings of it. We haven't even got to the collapse yet, so the real beginnings yeah. of, of the recreation of the new day hasn't hasn't started yet. But uh Yeah, until Christians can be fearless about being a Christian in this culture, we're not gonna do effective work. No, you're, you're not going to see any good news come no. out of that. No, when you're sitting there curling up in a ball because somebody's calling your name because you're like, no, there is such thing as a female. If you can't, if you don't have the courage to say that, you're not, you're useless to the gospel. <laughs> you're useless yeah. to the gospel. And I'm sure people are going to love me for that, but that's just, that's just how it is, right? Um, so until there's more and more people can willing to say that, this, you know, playing footsies with the world around these anthropological issues is just self-destruction. And uh, there you go. Well, the synod on synodality. The synod on synodality. There's, there's our thoughts for now, and there will be plenty more said both before and after we publish this episode. I, for the sake of ending on a message of hope, of course, there always is hope, but I think I would reiterate that the church isn't going away. The church isn't being defeated. It's just going to look different. And I would argue is going to look more the same as what it looked to especially those first 300 years of her existence. So yeah, there really exactly. isn't anything out of the ordinary. There's great hope going on in the world. And, and this is where, uh, when the word racism gets thrown around in America, it's so, again, again duplicitous. The church is thriving in Africa, yeah. Roman Catholicism and Anglicanism in particular, right? We've talked about it several times. Uganda was the least Christian country on earth in 1976. And Idi Amin, brutal dictator, murdered Janani Luam, the Anglican Archbishop uh, of Uganda, because he was speaking about human rights and the right of the gospel to go for us. And, and, Christianity was a small little minority. Uganda is the most Christian country on earth. Forty-five years later, yeah, that's unbelievable. It's crazy, right? So there's vocations galore, but these are Christians of color that were missionized by Catholic, Anglicans, and other Protestants 
who now tell them what they believe is wrong and racist. Yeah. How is that for colonialism? That exactly right. The racist is us. Yeah. Not them. Then the fact that they they actually believe the gospel and are telling us you're wrong. That's why all the Anglicans just got rid of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Like we're not recognizing you. You don't believe the gospel. You don't teach the gospel. You're not our Father in God. There's tremendous hope in the Christian world where people believe it. The gospel thrives. The family thrives. Values thrive. Freedom grows. Right where it's not protected, nurtured, preserved, mm -hmm. i.e., what's going on in Rome now and in Canterbury and all these other places, it dies. Yes. And it deserves to die. Yeah. So there's great hope in the gospel. Where the gospel is actually followed, it thrives, it changes the world. So I'm not hopeless at all no. about the, the gospel itself, but I, I have no hope in a dead secular, a dead Christianity in the West. Because it, it can't change lives. It's not even interested in changing lives. No. It doesn't believe in sin. It doesn't believe conversion is necessary. So let it die. It, it serves no purpose. It's just an, an empty husk. It yeah, really, it, yeah. It really clear is. out Clear out the chaff and right. make room for the wheat to grow. On this rock I will build my church, Jesus said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Yes. Well, there's much more for us to say about these issues, but for the sake of time, I think we'll wrap it up there. Thank you, as always, Thank for you. this conversation. Thank you to our dear listeners and viewers as well. Again, please like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. Every little bit helps, and we look forward to seeing you again next time on Lively Faith. God bless.